With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. The Vox Markets Podcast. Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may hold positions in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation. Please do your own research. Welcome back, everyone, to Vox Markets. My name is Paul Hill, and by popular demand, I'm delighted again to be able to speak to Stuart Whittleston of Odessian Capital, one of the UK's finest investors. So welcome, uh, Stuart. Morning, Paul. Yeah, well, you've had a cracking time over sort of the last two or three years, certainly. And uh, the markets actually in the US have had remarkably um, pretty pretty strong, actually, in the first half. But given interest rates are likely to stay higher for longer, at least for another sort of six months or so, what's your sort of outlook broadly for equities and particularly in your sort of like your sweet spot of sort of mid and small UK caps? Well, I think, I think short-term uh, forecasts are always notoriously unreliable. I think I think our view has, has consistently been when we look back in three or four years' time, now would have been a really interesting time to be getting a bit more uh, market exposure. Uh, there'll be some bumps along the way. I can't see a significant re-rating of equities until flows into the asset class change and, and, and flows for those of your listeners or viewers who look at this, flows into UK funds generally pretty dreadful at the moment. And that means there's more marginal sellers than marginal buyers. And, and therefore, basically, the valuation is coming to really generally being sort of pushed quite down. So something needs to change. Now, interestingly, Ed and I have been speaking to a number of existing and potential holders over the last um, you know, we're, we're constantly talking to people, but interesting in the last three or four weeks, people are starting to look at the UK again and say, actually, we know this is really cheap. We can see it's cheap. It's cheap in absolute terms. It's cheap, particularly relative to the, some of the big cap US stuff. But what's the catalyst? What's going to change? The challenge is when you realise what the change is, if you're not already positioned, you've already missed some of it. So it's, it's very much, we think, a game of patience. Um, within the market, I think there's going to be much more winners and losers. I think uh, any company that's got a lot of gearing that um, thought it could refinance on interest rate of exits, it's a bit like everyone who's got a mortgage, right? When, if you've got to refinance in the next six months, you know your mortgage is going to cost you more money. And that's going to have an impact on the actual value of your house. And it's the same for stocks. So I think there's going to be quite a big change there. I think the other big thing that we talk about is there aren't that many value managers left in the UK. In fact, we just had a client in just now talking with us about this. And in small cap, in you know, there's there's I know there's Aberforth, there's Teviot, there aren't that many other people left. And part of that's because so much money has moved towards growth momentum investing over the last decade. Um, and those funds got very, very big. But it, it, reallocation away from those funds is a bit like a super tanker. It takes time to turn things around. But we think it will. And if you go and look back at the, the aftermath, the dot-com boom, small cap value did really, really well. Really, really well. So I, I think there's, there's going to be a style change um, coming you know, uh, in the next uh, uh, you know, year or two in terms of what really moves markets. Mm. I mean, just in terms of that, um, the sort of the flows out of small and mid caps, you raise a sort of fascinating point. I know investors would be interested. 
where is that money going? So you get redemption, fund redemptions, etc. I know yours isn't because it's closed. It's, mm. a, it's a closed fund, etc. But you get a lot of these open sort of oiks, etc., which are sort of like lose, you know, lose some money, etc. Where is that money going? Is it going into sort of the big cats or into growth or into sort of the effectively into money market funds? Um, well, at the end of last year, look, it's dynamic. At the end of last year. Mm we were told by various wealth managers that you know this is this big push towards global equities away from country specific and you know if you've got your pension or your money with one of the wealth managers over the last 10 years they've probably sold more uk equities bought more us equities last year uk equities outperformed the first time in a long time reaction of most wealth managers was to top size uk equities which are still cheap and buy more us equities are expensive because that's what their asset allocation models attain them so something needs to change that so says move out of U- uk to, to global equities the other thing at the moment is you know the the returns you can get on gilts are pretty mm-hmm. pretty interesting so the 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 risk-free rate effectively is going up and therefore the the return you want from taking on more more risky equities is higher so there has been i suspect an allocation away from equities towards high yielding fixed income and certain bonds so mm-hmm. effectively if interest rates start to ameliorate and people think growth is going to come back, people will probably sell bonds and buy actors. Right. Who, okay. who knows when that's going to happen? It might be end of this year, it might be next year. Who knows? Yeah. Um, one 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 flow in which you've benefited pretty well since. I mean, we, we only spoke sort of six months ago, but uh, you've had Curtis Bank, Hive, and Devro all being bought out. Yeah. <laughs> How do you to that general sort of M and A theme? It's sort of like as the sort of the tide goes out, investors sort of move their money. The sort of professional, sort of like you know, sharp, serious guys come in and pick up the beautiful sort of like you know, your quality small and mid caps. Mm. No, I think um, when there's lots of mispricing, I think where we differ from a traditional value fund is we're particularly looking for companies that if the market doesn't value them properly, somebody else will. Mm. So they don't have poison pills, and because Ed and I worked in private equity, we we have a pretty good view of what assets PE houses are like. So we have been surprised by the level of private activity in bids this year. We thought it would taper off. Um, anecdotally, PE houses are starting to draw their horns in because the de- debt's just become a lot more expensive. You know, they've had years and years of borrowing money very, very cheaply to do buyouts. For them to look at a take private now, they have to have an existing asset in the portfolio that offers cost synergies. Straight straight take private is just not going to work, and we're hearing we're hearing that through the market at the moment. Um, in terms of corporate M and A, we think that it's going to be quite quiet until the autumn, probably end of this year. People want to see how bad the recession that everyone's been talking about for a long time. How bad is it going to be? What companies are going to be infected? And also, how price elastic com- demand for companies' goods and services are. So. You know, if you're, if you're impressed the other day, we, we've had a, a number of companies that put pricing up and held volumes. If you've got something like Hotel Chocolat that warned the other day, they said, oh, we know we've, we've found out that our products aren't as price elastic as we thought and demand's fallen off quite a bit. So people just want to see how that's all going to pan out. Yeah, okay. So they might be a bit sort of cautious in the sort of the near term. I did notice actually, they got an IPO this morning. There was um, it was cab payments, wasn't it? About the first mm. one on the uh, on the on the LSE. Hopefully, that's a one data point doesn't make a trend. So I won't sort of like uh, be, be thrown out the bunting yet. But uh, it was interesting. Nothing else. Now, can you just um, talk quickly? Your sort of initial thoughts on sort of regenerative AI at all? Because 
that's been a huge theme, obviously, with the Magnificent Seven out in the States. But mm. I think a lot of investors are sort of get the positives. It's sort of like what which companies potentially, you know, sort of like could get impacted. And let, let's start off with Essential, because I know we talked about that last time. It basically does sort of like, you know, data analytics. It does sort of conferences in sort of, you know, sort of um, B2B media, et cetera. And I know it was a sum of the parts. It was a sort of like a an unbundling play, I think, last time when we talked about it. Mm. No, absolutely. And they're in the process of, of, of unbundling at the moment. They, uh, it's quite well documented. They're auctioning their main asset called WGSN at the moment. Mm. We don't see that as particularly impacted by um, Gentive AI. Their exhibitions business, B2B, in fact, Ed and I went to the Money 2020 conference in Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago. It's difficult to see how that's going to be negatively mm. impacted by Gentive AI. And the digital commerce business is, is, is actually something that effectively uses AI to help big brands sell things more effectively on, on platforms such as Amazon. So we don't see that as being in the, in the firing line and probably on, on a beneficiary of that. Mm. I think if you look at uh, RWS in the portfolio, this is a translation yeah. services and software company. Yeah. Well, it's been doing its own language AI for a long time. And if you if there are two types of, of, of AI around translation, there's the stuff you can get on Google that everybody can access, and then mm. there's basically the private world. Um, and the thing about language translation technology is, if you use, you know, if you're I don't know, you're a um, uh, a, a pharma company, and you basically want to patent your your drug for you know curing cancer, you're never going to use Google. <laughs> Right. Really? <laughs> it, it's it's what well, the, the reason why is it was actually yeah. No, I get it. Why I understand the IP actually becomes Google's. Oh really? Oh okay, right. Okay, I, I thought uh, it was basically just correctness because it's, no. when you put a patent in, you spend so much money. The last thing you want to do is to get the actual terminology wrong, so somebody uh, later down they can actually copy your uh, you know, the formula. Yeah. Or, or if it's private, you know, you can't. You could, you know, you're not going to do that, yeah. and and you lose control of the content, particularly if it's open source like ChatGPT. So there's always going to be a need for sort of you know, basically private hmm. uh, language tech. The second thing is actually look at language, the language services provision. If you're Coca-Cola and you want to organize multi-language um, uh, campaign for know, the next World Cup, you, you tend to use service providers because they do it for you and it's a hassle. So I think there's a big, you know, the, the, actual, the actual physical translation is only one part of it. What AI will do is help them be more efficient so the cost per word will come down. Mm. And we think RWS is actually potentially quite much better placed in its broader peer group because it has this tech stack. It has its own language translation model in there, uh, technology, whereas many other, many other um, peers are actually just uh, uh, services companies. I can't believe how cheap it is, actually, because it's got a uh, rock solid balance sheet. It's got about 50-odd million of cash, and it's trading at less than 10 times PE. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the market has really, really given up this stock. And um, I think we think it's the, the baby being thrown out from the bathwater. Mm -hmm. Interesting, I don't know if you've seen any recent results they've announced a buyback. Which, oh, have they? No, I didn't yeah. see it. No, yeah. okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, so use some um, of that cash. Yeah, so and I, I think they were... I think there was a there has been a general view amongst the register that you know it's it's an important sign to show everyone's confidence the long term uh, future of the business and the fact they think they can net benefit from what's happening in the technology. 
Yeah. What about Wilmington? Because this one does sort of like data information, education and trading for sort of like, you know, your global government risk and compliance. It's sort of like high value safety data and presumably training for, for people. Again, it seems rock solid balance sheet trading at less than 14 times PE, which again is, is very reasonable for this sort of high quality asset. Yeah, and it's got net cash, so the X the X cash yeah. PE is quite a bit lower than that. Absolutely. So again, we 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 have a couple of companies in our portfolio that we thought might be impacted by A. We've talked to all of them. The the general view, the, the Wilmington management team is it's probably you know they can't see much negative impact yeah. from from Gentile. It's probably more positive, helping productivity, and also their their training business is a virtual business anyway. Um, so. We, we know if anything, it's probably positive. It's a slight tailwind for them rather than a headwind. Mm. And how yeah, you, we. Yeah, go on. How do you actually just more generally? How do you decide about you know you've, you've got a business, and I know it's sort of case by case, but the how do you decide whether it's going to be positively or negatively sort of impacted by regenerative? Is it the sort of the uniqueness of the propriety of the data stack mm. or, or the something just different that can't be copied as in like just by scraping the internet? Yeah, absolutely right. So if you look at quarter the, the, the data that Wilmington does, it, it is proprietary data. It's data they pull together themselves that is difficult to get from elsewhere. Yeah. I think I heard Nick Train speak the other day about RELPs and it's very, very similar for them. Mm. And actually, they, you know, certainly his strong belief was that, you know, your your, your wall around your business or your moat is this proprietary data. Mm. And actually, if you've got if you've got better um, processing technology and analytics, you can do even more with that data. Yeah. So it does become a beneficiary. If you're just scraping data off the internet that's publicly available, <laughs> AI is probably going to do it much better and much cheaper. Yeah. No, that's and a good rule. That's a really good rule of thumb, actually, for for investors, is that it gives you that moat, doesn't it? If you've got the data, then therefore mm -hmm. no, people can't copy it. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Now, in terms of sort of like the, turning to, to animal and um, healthcare, let's start with Spire Healthcare, which is a private sort of hospital um, operator in the UK. I think it's got about forty sites, etc. Now, mm -hmm. given my dad is a customer of it and is is changing his hips and his knees and his my stepmother's doing like. I'm guessing these guys, the, the car parks are full with patients at the moment, sort of waiting for their operations. Um, so, um, my mum as well just had oh, this okay. done in, 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 in Parkway in Sully Hill. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, so so again, we've, we've had a sort of mystery shopper experience there. Um, <laughs> very yeah. good, by the way. My dad yeah, would definitely no. go back. No, she was, she, was, she was very, very happy. No, look, I think, look, there, there's the obvious issue about um, waiting lists going up in the NHS. And, and also the time you wait. So I, I know people that can't afford to go privately and they, the waiting time for a knee or hip is months and months and months and months. So I think um, if you look at Spire's business, the, the, about 50 odd percent of it is private healthcare. Mm. Um, private healthcare penetration is going up at the moment. Um, 25 to 30% self-pay and the balance is, is NHS work. So um, the prospects are really, really good. The, um, the demands there, that I think they're still eating into a backlog of people from COVID as well. Who, who yeah, put things no, I'm off. sure they are. Yeah, um, and the the really interesting thing about that business is it's probably one of the least recognised transformation stories over the last five years. New Chief Exec came in about five years ago, changed virtually the whole top management team, and they've really started to take what was forty or fifty different individual hospitals, as you described, that were doing their own thing and actually try and get much more value out of it. So. Um, it, and it's being run like a commercial business. 
with high customer service rather than effectively driv- driven by people who are not that business focused. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of things have changed. You can, you know, rather than having to go into the hospital and, and maybe do some of your pre-operation stuff, a lot of it you can do online now. Um, you know, it, the, the, there's just a load of ways to improve the business. Mm-hmm. From a cost perspective, the um, it's, it's quite interesting. They we looked at our, we, we were quite big believers that inflation would be much higher than people thought two years ago. And one of the benefits that Spire has is it's quite quite asset heavy. So it owns all of its phone freehold property, which in rising interest, rising inflation is actually a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you we think next year is the real kicker for earnings because uh, the private healthcare uh, insurers only put their pricing up uh, on a, every 12 months. And then it's backwards looking on inflation. So if you think inflation is probably going to tail off mm. towards the end of this year, their price negotiation next in, in next March will basically be based on the previous 12 months to March. So actually, you're going to have quite a tailwind, we think, from pricing mm. just as costs are coming down. Yeah, no, um, I mean, I, I would agree. I mean, my dad is a, is, a, is a sort of pay-as-you-go sort of like, so you get more pay-as-you-go. But in the insurance side, what's really interesting, actually, is the U.S. large healthcare insurers are all saying their claims are going through the roof. And I bet the same thing is happening in the U.K. on the private sort of like, you know, insurance, because, uh, you know, people who have got cover are now using it. They're just thinking, uh, fab. Absolutely. And again, the, the, the proportion of people with PMIs, uh, private medical insurance, is going up as well. Yeah. So, so I think I think the outlook of that business looks really good. They've got a number of things they want to do to expand service lines as well. Mm. Um, you know, we think it's a really good asset. Yeah, and the, and the shares actually have ticked down as well, just of late. So, um, they, I mean, like everywhere else has as well. So, yeah, <laughs> just seem to be a, a nice one. Now, another one which has got a sort of like a perennial sort of transformation, animal care, sort of like um, benchmark. Now, this one does sort of like. Uh, I think it's sort of ingredients and um, health and nutrition and stuff for sort of seafood, particularly salmon and um, uh, and all that kind of stuff. What's your sort of latest view on this one? Because it's been it's currently shares about forty p, and I think it's been about forty p for as long as I can remember. Yeah, it's it's oscillated up and down a little bit, but, <laughs> but, but but absolutely right. I mean, the challenge with this one for institutional investors is there's very little free float. Right. So the top three shareholders own. 20 to 25 percent each yeah okay so um and there was a some question mark whether or not they'd be moving to a full listing in osco so they're dual listed now uh, on Euronext and and uh and on aim and it's probable that the it's possible that the full move to osco won't happen but this uncertainty has meant that not many uk institutional investors have been willing to look at it yeah because a lot of them can't own norwegian listed stock and then on top of that, if you want to buy, good luck trying to find some liquidity. Yeah, so, so I think it's a bit stuck. From a bit from a fundamentals perspective, again, new management team went in three and a bit years ago. They've done a fantastic job putting a lot of disciplines around capital allocation in. Um, it had a bit of a wobble during COVID. Um, that part of the end demand is driven by consumption of seafood, mm. which itself quite often is driven by eating out and going on cruises and things like that. So, so their markets were quite tough. They've recovered quite well. And the business is much better place, we think, to deliver shelled value, and it has been for quite a long time. Market's not recognised it. Um, again, some of some of parts discount opportunity as well. So the three divisions, there's advanced nutrition, uh, largely for, um, uh, for, for salmon and shrimp. Um, there's basically a salmon genetics business, which basically breeds 
basically produces disease-resistant eggs. Um, and there's a third business, which is Clean Treat, which is a next next generation sea lice treatment um, product and service. So quite three businesses, which you know there are, there is some merit in having them all together, but equally you could probably find different buyers for all of them. Yeah. So I, I, you know, it's going to be quite interesting. We we think either potentially, you know, one the Norwegian shareholders might decide to buy the whole business, or alternatively the business gets broken up. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I mean, no doubt about it. The price of salmon in supermarkets has uh, has increased significantly over the last three or four years. So uh, yeah. margins should be able to recover if you can get that sort of synergy value. Um, now, just turning to uh, all things cybersecurity and defence, NCC. Now, my antennae pick up when I see a quality stock in this sort of like cybersecurity area that falls so fast so quickly and has got GARP sort of characteristic. It does, NCC, it does basically cyber security but also has got a software escrow business that is a bit of a sort of like a total cash cow etc give us your latest view on this because i just frankly cannot believe the shares have come down so far it's less than a pound now yeah so no, no <coughs> neither can we we had um it was it was a reasonably sized investment for us um, at the end of March and had a profit warning the last day of the quarter, which is every fund manager's nightmare because there's <laughs> yes, nothing you can imagine. do about it. Um, and that, that profit warning was driven by part of their cybersecurity business, which was providing um, heads into the big US tech companies. And as some of your viewers might, might recall, in about January, February, March, there was quite a press about the Googles, the Metas, et cetera, laying off staff for the first time in a long time. And these guys were just caught in the crossfire. And I don't think the board anticipated that happening and effect, you know, sadly neither did we or other shareholders otherwise, hence you wouldn't have had the sharp move in the share price. And it happened quite late in the company's financial year, so their ability to redeploy staff was quite limited. Um, the, uh, now that's only one part of their cybersecurity business. The bulk of their cybersecurity business or much a large proportion um, is, is outside the US in markets that aren't impacted by what's happened in the big US tech companies. I think they, they said their government's cyber businesses are growing at 25 to 30% a year. Mm. And they've got another business within cyber, which is effectively managed services um, business where, where effectively it's much more recurring revenue and higher quarterly earnings. So the market's taken a very dim view of cyber in general and the whole company. The shares, I think, at the trough were about 80p. Mm. You're absolutely right. They've got this software escrow business as well, and we think that's worth potentially 70p a share alone. Yeah. So if you look at the valuation that was being ascribed on the cyber business at the troughs, it was like, I don't know, 30 or 40 million pounds mm. for a company that was 250 million of revenue. <laughs> that's just that's just wrong, right? Yeah. So then we looked at it and said, actually, if you if you strip out the managed services part of that, that's probably worth 50 to 60p. So you're getting a just for the managed services part in the escrow, you you know you're getting you know, one pound twenty, one pound thirty share, and effectively, you know, there's a massive negative value on two hundred million of cybersecurity mm. consulting revenue. Isn't that just feels wrong? Um, then you'd have thought the cybersecurity sort of like consultancy will perform better given the yeah, sort of like the you know generative AI because the amount of deep fakes which are currently online, yeah. then I mean it makes that job so much harder, doesn't it? Well, the, the, the threats are not going away. Mm. Um, what, what they've been caught with is too much, you know, they, they were caught with a very hot US market that they that probably everyone thought was going to continue and then suddenly stopped. And it's a case of reallocating people into other other 
market scenarios where where actually demand is still pretty buoyant. So uh, we see it as a bump in the road. Really interesting. You know, we, we like uh, people who eat their own cooking. Mm. Uh, the, the chairman just bought five hundred thousand pounds worth of stock, which is a lot of money in in, in anyone's uh, terms. And he, you know, if you his history, he 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 sorts businesses out and he sells them. Good. Okay, well, that's uh, yeah. You just proved to me that uh, it's it's definitely a value play rather than a, a potential value trap. That's for sure. Yeah, cross yeah. fingers. Can't be a tempt or and all yeah. that. But. Yeah, I don't. Wanna, that's right. Yeah, I don't. The famous last words. Um, now, uh, Kemring has obviously done pretty well over the last two or three years. I know we chatted about it a couple of times, but um, yeah. it does sort of like you know, in defence um, flares and decoys for helicopters and airplanes and stuff like that. Presumably, mm. you know, with Ukraine and Russia and probably out, there's probably the same sort of like aircraft and decoys, decoys are probably used out in Asia as well. But it's also got a very interesting rogue cybersecurity business as well, which is uh, flying. I think. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think if you remember, we'd, we'd actually sold out of the stock last year oh, on, okay. the, on the back of the puff around Ukraine. Yeah. But we've recently re-bought re back into it because the shares have been pretty weak, actually. Mm. Uh, and we think that, uh, look, you're absolutely right, we think Roke's a fantastic business. Um, it's probably not worth the whole of the market cap now, but it's, you know, that we think the company's trading on quite a big sum of parts discount again. Mm. And interesting, actually, on the non-Roke side, They've just announced a 90 million uh, capex plan mm. uh, to expand uh, a number of their facilities because they can see the demand coming through. Underlying demand is going to be much higher, I think. Most people think for the for the energetic side than and the countermeasures than it has been in the previous decade. Mm. And then there's a massive restocking exercise that needs to go on. Yeah. So course, yeah. Um, so I think the trading prospects of that business look pretty good over the next um, five to ten years. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think the, the real debate is 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 how well Rogue sits together with the countermeasures business, um, and, and I think that's that's going to be an interesting debate for shareholders and the board to have over time. Mm. Yeah, it's probably got commonality of some sort of the, the customer base, but the technology is different, isn't it? <laughs> the yeah, and, and, and the per, the purchase point is quite different as well. Yeah. So um, the rating that you put on those two businesses probably very different, quite different growth profiles. Uh, different type of investors that be interested in them. So I, I think it's it's going to be look, my gut feeling in five years' time, the business won't look how it is today. Yeah. Well, that's one of the advantages of you and Ed being on, on board is you're, you're sort of like active investors and you can uh, probe and uh, challenge management uh, to various different option, options and, and scenarios, So, uh, which is marvellous. Now, um, just moving to industrials, a whole sector actually has been flattened um, this year. Let's start with um, uh, Elementis, which basically does sort of like ingredients and for um, deodorants and coatings like uh, thickers and thingers, and also for sort of like you know, talc and chromium. And I think it sold its chromium business last year. But the, the sort of like the, the ground jewel, I think you mentioned last time, was do you mine or something for talc or something like that? that uh, yes. So, so it's, it's unusual because it's a specialty chemicals business. It, it also mm. owns a big proportion of its own raw materials. It's got, mm. yeah, the, the talc mines in Finland and also um, the world's only commercially viable and highest grade hexarite clay mines in, in I think it's, it's like Arizona or, or, or California. Yeah. Um, truly. And um, the, if you're vertically integrated in an inflation environment, it's fantastic. Really, really good because you control your own costs mm. from, from a raw materials perspective. And they've been incredibly successful at putting price increases through over the last few years. 
um, yeah, at 3M markets, really, they, they, they tend to focus on um, uh, they have uh, uh, they put ingredients into to paints, basically coatings, industrial yeah. coatings or decorative coatings. The market's a little bit concerned about how that's going to hold up, particularly in the US at the moment. Yeah. Um, the other areas, personal care products, so cosmetics and creams and, and antiperspirants, demand should hold up pretty well. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, in certain parts of the world, you know, we think demand's actually recovering. Um, they've also got significant cost savings coming through there because on the antiperspirants and cosmetic side, they've uh, closed one of their sites in the States and effectively have, have changed um, production to, to, to India where they've built a, a brand new plant which has the lowest cost production in the industry. And that, we think, saves probably $15 million or so cost this year. Right. That's a big cost tailwind. Yeah. Um, the, the final division is uh, is the talent business. And that had a really, really tough uh, uh, 2022. One of the end markets is automotive. Um, and automotive production in, in Europe was quite weak last year. And, and they had destocking. And also they were hit by energy costs going up in that business. So that business made no money last year. Historically, it's done $25 million of EBIT. Mm. So that's a massive swing on on profitability of the group um we think it's probable that comes back uh, and there's very little in forecast for that we think at the moment so lots of moving parts there we we look at it and say well i think the uh, the price to book at the moment is sub one mm. over the last 10 years the average has been 1.8 so from a fundamental value perspective the company is probably under earning it's got some parachutes to or some some things to compensate for slightly weaker top line but actually, valuation is assuming a pretty negative scenario. Had two bid approaches two years ago. Yeah, I was going to say trade yeah, bars. Was... Yeah, yeah. Bit of oh, it's, it's, there. it's got to be it's got to be a crown jewel in the on the UK, trading at uh, just over twelve times PE. So uh, on yeah. trough earnings. <laughs> yeah, and 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 a lot of people saw the chemical, the premium chemicals division as a poison pill. Yeah, and that's okay. gone. Yeah, okay. absolutely gone. So. Um, Another one which has been sort of the through the ringer in the industrial sector is Flowtech Fluid Power, slightly smaller, about 60 million market cap, got a bit of debt, but it does sort of like a distributor and does services for all things sort of pneumatics and, and fluid power type of, um, you know, sort of valves and stuff like that, distributes to companies around the UK. It's trading on roughly around about just over well, about eight and a half times PE for this year on probably again quite low earnings. And um, it's sort of struggled to increase its uh, return on capital employed. What's your sort of outlook for, for this business? Because, it, again, it's, it, it hasn't yet been able to transform itself. No, I think that's right. I think the, 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 since we last spoke, the news there has been a, a change to chief executive. So mm. um, Bryce has been there for, had been there for quite a long time, has, has, has handed over the reins um, to... To a guy who's come, from, yeah, that's right. From who's come from uh, Electro Components, where he yeah. was a group COO. So a very, very highly qualified guy to take on the, the baton from um, from Bryce. And I think if you look at RS Components in particular, their their online capabilities are are fantastic. So the hope is that Mike, coming from from a, a company that's been through that transition, can really help. Flowtech, I guess, turbocharge what it's looking to do on the online side, which has probably taken a bit longer than I think all the investors had hoped. Look, it, the other thing is, Paul, it's it's really suffering from the size of the market cap, sub 100 million. There just aren't that many people interested in buying these things at the moment. And the foot, the, the you know, once you 
drop below 100 billion, the number of potential buyers falls even more. So, you know, I, I, we still think there's a lot of value there. Ultimately, it's a consolidating industry. I think there's some things that Mike can do to help short-term and medium-term performance. Um, let's see where this one goes. The the as well as the self-help, the uh, you know, I think I suspect people might be a bit worried about the UK, uh, the impact of the UK recession on the company. Who knows what that looks like? And is it consumer recession? Is it industrial recession? No one really knows. So I, th- I think it's it's understandable that that maybe at the moment you know it's it's a bit friendless. But we still we still see lots of potential value there. Yeah, well, they've got a good guy at the top. Then, um, yeah, you can definitely make a transformation, no doubt about it, over a, a certain set. I mean, and I do take your point on the liquidity because I try to buy some shares in a billion. Yeah, pound, good luck in a billion pound company, <laughs> and I was struggling. <laughs> liquidity going in is awful, but getting out is even worse. So, well, well, I think that's quite interesting. I mean, we've got. I mean, we, we mentioned a couple of other companies on here. Mm. Um, We've um, we've managed to pick up quite big stakes in Gucci and Housco and James Fisher over the last year. Okay, right. And you know these are these are companies that now you can't find any stock. And right. we've we've ended up buying eight percent of Gucci and Housco and a couple of blocks. We bought five percent. Of... It's, it's, it's just discussed Gucci and Housco. What's yeah. sort of like interest you there? Because they do sort of like a really advanced photonics, don't they? Which go into sort of like. A, industrial applications, medical, and all this sort of stuff. And uh, I've never really got my head around what they actually do and what's the sort of the investment case. Yeah, so so, so the technology they have is really all around optics and ele- electronics, the combination of those, which is which you say is called photonics. And they make components and subsystems that go into machines that effectively use that or, or alternative their components for... Um, subsea fiber couplers for, for telecoms cables so, so everybody probably today right now is a user of gooch and Housecoats equipment because they they're the, they're the largest provider of these fiber couplers that, that take the cables to and from under the sea uh, they also uh, are used industrial lasers um laser-based um medical uh, machinery mm. and and when they look at the optics in particular their their usp might be the coating they put on the optics the optical thing that allows them to right, go, okay. you know, IR, so you can see, you know, defense application, you can see through fog effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so lots of really niche niche areas, and it really is a collection of, of niches. Um, the opportunity, you know, I've, I've known this company many, many years. I was an investor just over a decade ago. Ed and I have been looking at it for five years, waiting for an entry point. <laughs> and um, uh, they, they had a, a pretty tough uh, period in 2022 because of supply chain issues. And they were really some supply chain issues and probably some self some difficulties with their own operational management. And they ended the year last October with slight disappointing results, but with a massive overdues and, and a big order book. New, they're underperformed beyond margin. New chief execs come in. He put his strategic review out last month, and he's targeting uh, medium-term operating margin in the mid-teens. It makes about nine percent today. Um, we were in for about 0.9 times EV sales, which if they can get to 15% margins and grow quite nicely, looks a pretty, pretty undemanding entry price. I think the long-term EV sales is two times EV sales. Yeah. So again, you know, we thought it was a really good opportunity, but again, it was the shares were very friendless. Now apparently there's lots of you know, there's a number of buyers trying to buy stock. Good luck. 
you know? Yeah, well, I can imagine somebody will put the, the slide rule over them as well to sort of like, uh, if private equity, I mean, again, it's a sort of crown jewels. Now, what about sort of like just mentioned um, James Fisher, which does all mm. things sort of services to the marine sector, which is actually having a bit of a boom with oil and gas and with offshore wind and stuff like that. So what's your sort of like your, your view on um, on this business? Roughly around about 200 million market cap. It's got quite a chunky amount of debt, about 145 mil. Mm. That may include some of the leases. I'm not sure. But uh, so yeah. what, what's your view on this one? So this was uh, our, our, one of our higher risk, high return investments that we looked at last year. So some of the listeners might be familiar with, uh, you know, it, it was a go-go stop for very many years. They did lots of acquisitions, but it's probably fair to say there were lots of acquisitions, but maybe not so much integration. And if you pick up the annual, the annual report, there's two pages of active subsidiaries, many of which get audited. And they're all subscale. And there's a big job to be done of, of, of simplifying and taking cost out. The company had also moved away from a relatively asset light business model to, to buying a number of quite asset heavy uh, business lines, particularly around offshore uh, uh, offshore ships, basically. Yeah. So the business model changed and they geared up to do that. And they got themselves in trouble with the balance sheet. So we looked at it last year and thought, well, actually, no one wants to own the stock. It's on 60% of book value. Yes, it's quite geared, but they have lots of options to get themselves out of trouble. And they made three quite significant disposals at the end of last year, which has alleviated the pressure on the balance sheet. And also they've rebanked as well, which is critical. The real opportunity from now is margin improvement. You know, they're, they're, as you say, they've got lots of tailwinds um, uh, uh, of growth coming through for their own markets, but the company makes about 6% operating margin. The management team's initial target is to get the margins 10%. Mm, right. And they see that as a start. Um, and 10% operating margin would be 15% return on capital. And that would probably be a high teens return on equity. Even though the shares have done pretty well, they're still trading in book value. And if you can get high teens ROE, the company should be trading probably at two times book. Right. Okay. So we've, we've done we've done all right. We've, we I think we've 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 done all right with the refinancing and effectively the balance sheet repair that's been done. Yes, they need to pay a bit more debt down, but if the management team get the business really humming, you know, there's still a pretty good upside to be had there. Right. We gotcha. think. Yeah. And then another one on the industrials is, um, which I think is a German or Austrian business, is um, Stabilius, which does sort of like hinges and it has a sort of dominant market share. I think you mentioned last time. For, yeah. Um, for spring, you know, for cars and um, off-highway and all kind, and, and also medical, I think, for, for for hospital beds. That's right. So, so the the legacy product is basically gas gas springs. Yeah. So, when you open a bonnet in your car, most cars now the bonnet goes up and stays up automatic. Whereas when I was a nipper, we had a, a sort of a rod that you had to go and put up to keep your bonnet up. Mm. Um, so that the gas spring is what keeps it up. It you know it helps hatchback you know lids close. If you know if, if people have got an SUV with a middle row of seats, quite often the gas rings there to help you mm. pull the seat up as well. Um, the company's got exposure to the automotive market and industrial market. The real growth in automotive has come from what they call their powerized product, which is if if you've got an SUV with a, or a state car with a power boot, it's the mechanism that, that when you press the button, the boot goes up on itself, yeah. and the the unit value of that is 10x what it is yeah. for a uh, for a normal gas spring. So that's you know, even if the auto market's flat, penetration of power rise is going up. So the company's growing off the back of that. Um, the industrial business, um, again, is a market leader. It's neat, sorry, the, the, the automotive business 
has I think a 70% global market share in gas springs. It's the biggest by a long way, and it owns that market. In Power Rise, it's got about 35, 40% market share. Right. Um, in industrials, it has low market shares, but it's the leader in a much more fragmented area. So uh, putting pricing up has not been a problem for this company at all. Um, I think the market's nervous about general industrial demand, but we think over the long term, it's a, it's a fantastic company. There's a couple of, it's unusually for a German company, it's got a, an absolutely clean register. There's no family shareholder owning 35, yeah. 40%. And there's some really, you know, it's, it's a global business. You know, there's some very interesting US peers that are much bigger with big balance sheets. So it wasn't surprised at all if one day we, we woke up and rather than it still being cheap, it belongs to somebody else. Yeah, it does look like a total category killer and it's trading on about 13 times with a very strong balance sheet. So uh, yeah. yeah, good good one for the uh, for the long term for investors to have a look at. Now, another one in sort of the industrial side, in, digital inject printer technology, Czar. This is something mm-hmm. that's been around for ages and i think it's got a new well, it's got quite low operating margins at the moment but has always struggled to get above that sort of like low single digit what's your sort of view on this one because uh it's sort of like uh, conf- conf- confused investors for just ages well i think this is a man this is a management story here yeah um the the, the, the current team went in in uh early 2019 mm. to basically uh totally changed the commercial strategy um, and refocused back on the original bulk inkjet market where they mm. where they've been so successful in the ceramics yeah. end market and said so rather than trying to diversify elsewhere let's just go and find other bulk inkjet markets we can address other than ceramics and, and basically use our existing technology and tweak it for those markets and they are they are towards the the latter end of launching a whole bunch of new products into these markets, such as textiles, mm. uh, which was which was launched at the end of last year, uh, and wide format graphics, which is next year. And these, these basically increase the addressable market very, very significantly for the company. The key difference with their technology is the fact they can print with very, very viscous liquids compared with any other technology. So um, uh, the... the uh, measurement of, uh, of viscosity is something called cp if water is one a cup of coffee might be six the competitors basically can't print above about 25 they can print up to 100 with wow. their own technology and that which is effectively like printing motor oil yes um and they've just done a, a technology licensing deal which was announced yesterday with a german company um which allowed them to print up to 400 cp so very, very, very interesting part of the market. Look, this is all about whether or not the new products they launch are going to be commercially successful. If they are, the volumes are likely to be substantially higher in the next five years than they are today. They've just put lean manufacturing in the factory, um, and uh, which we think will add quite material to gross margin. Ultimately, what should business make? High teens margins. Right, okay. Yeah, you'd have yeah. thought so with, with high IPR. Yeah. It's always been yeah. sort of promising high margins, you'd, you'd expect. Okay, well, yeah. good work in progress on that one. Yeah, and again, it's the only independent one left. Everyone else is Japanese conglomerate or US conglomerate. Yeah. yeah. What about um, XP Power that does sort of like, um, it's a Singapore-based sort of power converter. I'm guessing it's benefiting from electri- you know, electrification of all things, sort of like, you know, AC to DC and moving things mm. around, you know, this sort of stuff. What's your sort of latest view? Makes good margins, actually. Operating profit, about sort of 15 
Yeah, so it, it should be more. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, should, it, should, it should make about 20% margins. Again, this is another company that's been caught up with the supply chain issues um, about getting product. Where it differs from the power converter that maybe goes between the plug and your PC, mm. um, what it does is power converters for much lower volume applications where there's a need to semi-bespoke. So it might be that it, that it has to go in, I don't know, a machine in a hostel where there's no electrical noise, where it's not standard voltage, so it's not 9 volts or 12 volts. It might be 14.7 volts for whatever reason. So so it's 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 quite an interesting um, business. End markets are um, so healthcare, general industrials, such as test and, test and measurement machinery, and also semiconductor. Yeah. Um, the order book is is very strong at the moment, uh, and way above um, uh, way above what it's been for quite a long time, and it will start to eat into its order book. Market got a bit concerned about two things. Number one, um, they'd geared up quite a bit last year, and they had a, a legal case found against them, which was uh, which was much more punitive than they thought. Now that might be reduced, but everyone's taking worst case scenario on that. The debt's got quite high. Mm. We think actually the debt will, will won't be a problem over the medium to long term. Are they are the management team sort of that's one of their objectives to pay down yeah. that? Get, yeah, get get down. And the company's very cash generative. Yeah. So um the second issue is um uh is concern about the semiconductor industry. You know, that there's a perception it's boom or bust in terms of capex. Now, their view is, number one, the order book is massive. We're not seeing any particular deterioration or degradation in, in orders coming through. Number two, if you look at what's happening in the CHIPS Act and the reshoring of semiconductor manufacturing in the US from, from, the, from, from Asia, there's going to be several years of very strong demand yeah. there. So actually, yeah, actual volumes of, of manufactured semiconductors are quite weak at the moment, but it's likely that you know, sentiment will improve towards the stock towards the end of the year. Yeah, there's huge capacity being bring, you know, brought on stream in the fabs, isn't there? So they've got and, to... and the, well, they've got to kick them out. And you know, the, the, the TSMC facility in Arizona, we lost some at the management team. They said everyone's built the factory. You know, Biden went down there and what have you. There's nothing in it. Yeah, they've got to. You're right. They've got to basically put the um, put the equipment in there, haven't they? And yeah. I, I know Intel are doing the same. And uh, I think Infineon are as well. And so yeah, there's plenty going off. Now another one which is um, the old VTEC business, uh, Videndum. Now, obviously, you know, as we've opened up the economy, people have probably, you know, they, they were they were recording their home videos and put posting on and, and, and upgrading with cameras and and buying stuff from the old VTEC business or Vivendum. Um, now that we're going out more, that's probably been a bit of soft spot. But there has actually been, <laughs> I did notice, has been a sort of like a, a writer's strike out in uh, in Hollywood. And, like, and now there's an actor's strike, actually, as well, oh, for uh, film producers. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you know, there was a director's strike. Well. Everyone just... seems to be striking. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it's really unhelpful for this business. And I think, um, I think you know, we, we've owned a small bit of this in the fund for some time. We, we yeah. traded it quite well last year sold half the holding having made quite well you know this this has been i think quite unfortunate and on top of that what they what they were really struggling with on the more consumer side of the business was mm. was destocking with their customers yeah um in fact actually they when we saw them quite recently they showed us pictures from some of their customers with shelf edge labels of their product uh that the that that, that was in the customer's store where the customer had never actually ordered the product right because they didn't want to take more entry on because they okay. because they weren't. So this is in a bit of a perfect storm at the moment. 
it has a quite a bit of debt at the moment, mm. although very cash generative. They have traded through before. They have part of the business they can sell, which is a non-core asset, which I think could could bring debt down. I think it's uh, I think it's in a um, short term. It's in a bit of a tricky situation. Long term, as we've talked about before, it's the quite often the dominant provider in all the niches it's in. In some cases, it's got ten times the market share. The next guy. Um, you know, I think for, for, for long term, I think it would do very well, but there's quite a short term uncertainty there. Yeah. And just broadly, in terms of companies which are indebted, et cetera, how do you sort of like um, put them into the sort of they should be okay bucket and the, or the difficulty bucket? Is it sort of like they're looking at term structure and when they have to refinance that debt or, or, or how do you actually view it? Yeah. So we look at terms, we look at covenants, uh, we look at the, the the need for capex or otherwise in the business the asset backing so mm. again everyone was very worried about elementus three years ago mm. um and we we thought the asset backing was more than about almost potentially double the debt yeah so so that company will always get banked by somebody if you've got uh, an industrial company with lots of depreciating machinery with no other buyers of the stuff you know that that's quite a bad that's not as good a leverage prospect so so we look at the underlying assets look at spy hostels owns as a freehold you yeah. always get debt for that business yeah. so you know we we look at that and then we consider um you know uh, we consider what's a reasonable amount of debt and, look, and we also look at the shareholder register as well you know mm-hmm. if the company needs to raise a bit of equity who else is on the register will they and can they fund uh, a bit a bit more of an equity cure as well and sometimes these situations can be pretty interesting so you might lose a bit of money and get it get the balance sheet slightly wrong but if you put money in at the bottom and maybe take above your shareholding and people can't follow your money you make a really really good return on the equity financing yeah. but it has to be a good business you know there's no point in in, in going to an indebted company that's a bad business Mm. Or, or nowadays you put in convertible debt at 10 percent and uh and make hay while the sun shines <laughs> yeah it's it's um yeah I, th- I think uh you know refinance can be very good we made lots of money in 2009 finally good companies with bad balance sheets yeah good well in six months time i'm going to ask you again Stuart, what your view is on the thames water okay you have to tell me about that one, balance. It's only 14 billion, apparently. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that one to you, Paul. Easy, easy, <laughs> easy one to refinance. Uh, no. just... Now, uh, just going full circle, fine light. Um, Dialer light, which does um, sort of industrial LED lights, etc. Now, again, the sort of the, the margins are quite tight, about 4% operating uh, profit margins. I was just wondering what, what sort of attracts you to this one in terms of USPs or growth or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a re, it's another really good example of a company that should and could be doing we think much better, mm. and we think you know we think it should be making double digit margins you know yeah. pretty comfortably. But there's been um, this has been hit by supply chain chain issues as well. Um, they gave a really good example of one of their semiconductors. Normally would have been one or two dollars mm. uh, when things were very tight last year. They were they were having to pay thirty or forty dollars for some of these semiconductors. Uh, and some of the distributors wanted $100 for some of them. So, so there's been all this supply chain problems. And the, the company had a choice. Either they take a margin hit and supply their customers on time, mm. or alternatively, they basically they don't and they lose share. And they, they, they went for share gain, which was painful in the short term. Um, there's been quite significant ball change there as well, quite recently, since we last spoke. And uh, two new non-execs, particular note, a guy called Neil Johnson has gone in. And I think in the annual report, it states that a number of shareholders were were keen to promote 
Neil to, to become chairman. Mm. Um, Neil is a, has a fantastic track record of turning around uh, small mid-cap companies, particularly in the electronic sector. And there's another non-exec uh, joint called Steve Blair, who's the, in, the senior non-exec. And he actually was chief exec of a business that Neil turned around as well, a company called ETV Technologies, which, which I was a big investor in. Um, yeah, look, we, we think fix this business should be making more than 10% margins. Mm. And it's a small player in a big global market with lots of gorillas around. Yeah. Well, as I say, again, another one, if you get a sort of a heavyweight management team who have done it before, then uh, with that sort of track record, then they know which levers to pull to get the business back into shape. So, uh, yeah, good potential upside. And just more broadly, in terms, how much cash does the um, Odessian Capital sort of fund have? And and where are you looking sort of like, if you do have any spare, where are you looking to deploy? Don't tell me any stocks because I know you can't, but no. in just terms of sort of sectors. Uh. We're, we're not we're, we're short of cash and long ideas at the moment oh, okay <laughs> well that's yeah. because of you, what you're saying there's really good value yes. in that whole area i mean that yeah i mean we, we've looked at a couple of stocks and we thought actually we really like new we really like this company that we don't own we we think we might make 3x on it but we've got no cash so right are we going to sell a company we think it's got 100 upside to go and put into a company that's got 200 upside yeah. You know, that that's the conundrum we've got at the moment. That's a nice problem, though. <laughs> it's frustrating, though. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the big. I mean, you've, you've had some of our, some of our peers like Richard Penny, etc. I mean, we the general view is our market is really un, unloved and, and hated at the moment. Yeah. But but you've got individual stocks like Gooch and James Fisher. Mm. When sentiment changes from indifference to people want to buy these things can move very very quickly in fact actually we're doing our quarter at the moment our average company weighted average company is trading um at half its long-term ev sales and price to book ratio <laughs> i just that's that, the weighted average yeah no i did look i mean you've got nas this year today you've got nasdaq up 35 percent and aim is down 10 percent, and it's just like so extreme <laughs> crazy it's 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 uh, it's an unusual period and i think and these things do change but i think the, the thing you know it's, it's different for retail investors but for institutional investors if you if quite often you have to buy before the bottom yes to get the volume because once these things turn you know, gooch and house go good luck trying to find eight percent of the company now you just no, I, I, I'm it. with you. You're never going to buy at the bottom, and you're never going to usually don't sell at the top. But uh, if you can get the position that uh, of, of significant volume um, on a on a down day, then you can live through if it goes further down and then comes back up at a later date. Yeah, I'm with you. It's um, and I think the 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 key to 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 the key to avoid is basically companies that have bad balance sheets where they don't get rescued and they're, they're bad companies. That's where you get killed. You know, other things generally recover. And I think another bit of good news for um, Odessian investors is that given the quality which you've bought, I'll, I'll be stunned if there isn't any more M&A and you had a boatload last year. So that, wow. should give you, that should give you a bit more firepower for you and Ed to put into these businesses with uh, with multiple X upsides. Well, we don't, we don't bank on it, but... What we think is really interesting, the portfolio has got almost its record low exposure to UK economy. We've only got 24% of the portfolio exposed to the UK. The rest is all international. Yeah. You know, UK assets are still cheap. We don't see sentiment from trade buyers here at the moment. I think if, once we know how bad the recession is going to be and people can price things, if, if, if companies' share prices haven't moved, we think it's going to be a low activity next year.
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it feels a bit feels a bit early now. It's a, it's too early now. It might be a bit early Q3, Q4, but I think next year could be pretty interesting. Mm. Well, it's better to be early than to be late. That's for sure. Now, yeah. um, now, Stuart, if people want to put some money into the Odessian fund, how best to do that? I mean, obviously, I guess the shares are traded, aren't they? So you can. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's like any other company. Obviously, we'd, we'd suggest that people take their own independent advice uh, and, and look at the appropriateness. But um, yeah, it's it's a stock trade like any other stock on the stock market. Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks again, um, Stuart. Keep up the great work and look forward in asking you about Thames Water in six months' time. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, Paul. Thank take Bye. care. Bye. The Vox Markets Podcast. Nothing in this podcast is intended as investment advice, and the people in this podcast may hold positions in the stocks they talk about. Do not buy anything based solely on a tip or recommendation. Please do your own research. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.